Welcome to Beyond Borders, the world's first talk show made especially for English learners and global citizens with me, your host, Ethan. In every episode of this show, it is my job to guide you outside of the classroom and into the real world with life-changing insights from some of the world's best teachers, language learners, innovators, and leaders, all here to help you unleash your highest potential in your English and your life. So if you are ready to join our movement of millions and together create a world beyond borders, then let's get started with the show. Gabriel Weiner is an American polyglot, book author, and founder of Fluent Forever. He fell in love with language learning while training to be an opera singer at school. After feeling pressured by a deadline to achieve proficiency in French, he worked his way to fluency studying on his own. Noticing that there was valuable advice online that was not put together, Gabe decided to share his journey in the book Fluent Forever, how to learn any language fast and never forget it, which since has become a bestseller. Since 2019, he and his team have been helping thousands of people with their language learning through their Fluent Forever app. Their mission is to enable a million people to have comfortable conversations in a foreign language by 2030. So this interview with Gabe was absolutely fascinating. It left me with so many questions and I only wish that we could have talked longer. The interview starts a little bit slow, but trust me, stick in there through the whole interview for a goldmine of life-changing language learning advice. Gabe shares with me about his childhood and how his parents instilled a growth mindset in him from an early age, how a coming-of-age ceremony led him to become an opera singer and study vocal arts, why goals are a crucial part of his language learning, and how he sets effective objectives, how learning another foreign language might help you better learn English, the brain science that goes into making the Fluent Forever method effective, and how you can learn pronunciation, vocabulary, and grammar in an efficient and natural way. So you're really in for a treat with this one. It could just change the way that you think about language learning. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. So let's get into episode 19 of Beyond Borders. Well, Gabe, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. You're someone that I've been following for a long time as you know, someone who, not as much nowadays, but I used to be quite into language learning and trying to be a polyglot myself. And uh, I found just your TED Talk and like so many of the different resources from you just so valuable. So first of all, I would just want to thank you for everything that you've done in the world of language learning. I thank you for that. I, it's, it's been a pleasure and it's it's just nice to sort of chat with people who've been there for a long time. Mm. I thought I'd start off from where it all began from your childhood as we couldn't really find very much about that in our research. So I'll ask you a question I usually ask towards the end, but uh, what's a unique lesson that you learned from your parents or what is something that your parents did when you were growing up that you noticed like your friend's parents didn't do? So it's just something maybe odd or interesting that they did in child raising. Interesting. Um, I mean, I think there was a sense from really, really early on of like, you can do anything that was really, really pushed hard. Um, I think I really believed it. It was like, wait, I, anything. Okay, cool. Like, let me, let me go do that. Um, that I think got me to 
really want to become good at things. It doesn't matter what the mm-hmm. thing was. It was just like, if I can acquire a skill, then I'm going to have more value as a person. And so I'm just going to acquire that skill. And, uh-oh, I, I, this one is hard. I better learn how to do that thing. Um, so that kind of environment, I think, made it so that I, I put a lot of work into, I guess, optimization, really, mm-hmm. um, and into like optimizing myself uh, that I didn't see reflected in other folks. There were a lot of other, like, you know, kids that would just kind of play games and things like that. And I was like, no, no, no. What, what if we optimize this? Like, uh, so I think that that was some of the early framing that I think helped, um, uh, helped in terms of acquire, like figuring out a lot of these methods. I think, uh, in terms of like long-term mental stability and things like that, I am trying to unlearn and be like, wait, actually it is okay to sit down and play some games and things like that. So both mm-hmm. of those things, I think there's always pros and cons for each of these you know, starts that people can have. Do you remember any examples of, of things that your parents did to show you this or to encourage it? Or, I mean, you said like also just, uh, optimizing childhood games. Do you remember any examples of that? It was just a lot of, I think it was a lot of focused praise. It was that I, I had a, a mm-hmm. bit of an, a knack for that kind of thing. And so if, if someone, you know, a teacher brought up something in a class, I would, you know, sit in the front of the class and see how well I could do it so that I could get the more, get the praise basically. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think it was less about lessons of, of this is how you should do these things and more uh, I was praised so intensely for being good at any particular thing that mm-hmm. I really wanted more of it. Uh, and so I, I just that that was what led towards lots and lots of optimization. That makes sense. Yeah. Fantastic. And how did that kind of lead you into opera? So like where did that interest come from? And the opera stuff, I I. I used to be a violinist. So, uh, when I was five, I picked up the violin. Um, it was largely to compete with my brother who was five years older. Uh, and I was like, well, if he's doing it, I'm going to do it. Um, and so I, as a result of playing the violin, you pick up a decent sense of basically not being tone deaf. Uh, you, you train your ear pretty well. Um, and so by the time I hit the age of 12, I had a bar mitzvah, which for those in the audience who, don't have a lot of Jewish friends and stuff. This is basically where you take a a teenager whose voice is about to crack and you stick them in front of a, like 200 people and you tell them to sing uh, <laughs> and sing a big old chunk of memorized Hebrew uh, and just sort of hope that they don't completely fail. And like you're, you're set up to fail. Uh, mm-hmm. There's you're, you're at exactly the age where this is going to be the least comfortable thing possible. Um, and I, I didn't, uh, because I, I had a decent sense of a, because I was doing this optimization thing. And so I really, really, really practiced cause I wanted to do a good performance. Um, and B because from the violin stuff, I, I knew where pitches were. Um, and so usually you have these tone deaf teenagers with cracking voices who are failing to get through this, this, you know, Bible verse. Um, but I did actually quite well. It sounded fine. It sounded like a, a boy soprano getting through a decent, you know, song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think at that point, my mother's friends started poking at her, being like, hey, your, your, your kid sings well, like he should be a singer. Um, and my mother loved musical theater and um, I think wanted me to do that thing. Um, I resisted for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't super interested in learning how to sing. Um, but the at some point, I got a crush on someone in the theater program. And I just thought, you know, if I just learn how to sing, then I'm going to get, you know, this person's attention. Uh, and then I asked for voice lessons. Um, and I found a really, really great teacher who allowed me to feel like I was progressing every week. Um, and that 
is addictive. Uh, and that's actually what ultimately became really addictive about language learning as well. Um, there is a sense of when you're learning how to sing where you have a set range, you sing these, you know, nine notes, and then the next week you can sing 10 notes. And you're like, what? Well, that's significant. I didn't, mm-hmm. I could only sing this, but now I could sing that. Um, and then suddenly you can sing another note on the bottom and you're like, well, now I have 11 notes. Like, well, this is really cool. Can I keep going? Um, I used to only be able to sing this loud, but now I can sing even louder. And so like every week you're getting better as an organism, mm-hmm. like your, your body is getting better. Um, and so it's for people who like to see innate skills growing, it, it's kind of perfect for that thing. And so it became really addictive. Um, and so I, I, I was getting better from week to week and I was feeling good about it. Um, and that eventually led to me applying to a music conservatory in college as, as one of my college options. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just kind of a, a whim thing. It was like, well, you know, what if I did that? Wouldn't that be weird? Uh, because yeah. I was always a science nut. That was, that was always my focus and it was always my interest was just science engineering. Um, and I applied for that conservatory just as a, because I thought it would be weird. Uh, and then got in and got a scholarship for that thing and thought, well, yeah, that would be weird. Let's, let's do both. Uh, and that's eventually what led towards, towards the opera route, at least part of what, that's what led to the, the beginning parts of that opera route. That's very cool. That's actually one of the, uh, things I was going to ask about was that you got very different degrees in university, which most people don't tend to go that route. It's a sure. lot more work, right? So you did mechanical engineering and vocal arts, correct? Yes. So I was just kind of curious, you know, I mean, I suppose you, you kind of explained, but how did that end up, that combination end up happening? Um, it, it was this, this idea, it was a mixture of things. I mean, partly it was the, what I just described. Partly it was that, that that university happened to be near my parents and I was a bit, you know, codependent with them. <laughs> the idea of leaving home was something that was a little scary. Um, and so I think that was also part of it, honestly, in retrospect. Um, I think there was something to be said for not specializing early. Um, I spoke to some people who had gone, like I, I got into like three colleges that I cared about. Um, and at one of them, I could have gotten a, a, an undergrad degree in, in nuclear engineering, which is the thing I wanted. Uh, that was always my interest was like nuclear power. Like that's what I wanted. Um, and I spoke to someone who went to that university and basically said, Hey, like you can specialize this much in undergrad and it is a terrible idea. Like no, no one cares about the undergrad who is specialized in nuclear engineering. Like they're, they're hiring the grad students, not the undergrads. You're going to need to get a grad degree any great anyways. Why, why force yourself into this tiny box when you could go expand yourself some? Uh, And I think that was actually really good advice. I'm I'm not sad about the route I took. I think it was actually a really nice one for really getting a sense of, of like a broad understanding of a broad variety of problems. Um, the mechanical engineering degree, as it turned out was, was just a degree in problem solving. It wasn't anything like that was the main uh, complaint people had by the end of it was, I don't know how to do anything. I don't, I don't know how to build an engine. I don't know how to build a a jet engine. I don't know how to do anything. I just kind of know how to solve some problems. And that's actually like, while that was a complaint from a lot of my peers, like that's the gold of it. Uh, the idea that they, someone just came in and spent a bunch of years teaching you how to think and how to think in a more analytical way. Like that's super cool. And so that degree was really, really broad. And then the idea of getting a music degree on top of it, that's a whole other angle that, that doesn't overlap at all. Um, so it ended up being a really, really enjoyable, really broad undergrad education. Um, I am just super thankful for how that ended up. It was just really, 
it's special. I, I don't think a lot of people get to experience that kind of thing. Yeah. It strikes me as interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, most people choose like either for lack of a better term, but like the right brain or the left brain route, you know, either doing something very scientific or engineering or uh, medical or doing the more creative route, like the, you know, whether it's music or art or uh, international studies, which, which I focus more on. And I imagine that kind of made, that set you up to kind of be able to do so many different things. The fact that you had such different concentrations there already. And uh, the other thing that strikes me as interesting, I think, going into university, at least in the culture of the United States, most of us feel like we're being pressured at that moment that we have to decide what we want to do for the rest of our life. And I think so many of us at that age haven't even had enough experience to really know what we're really interested in or what, you know, we could really dedicate our lives to. So, uh, and I'd be curious, like, where's that, where's that gone for you? The, the mechanical engineering, because you definitely went more the route of the, the creative side with language learning? I mean, I, I think I've actually split the difference. Um, I feel mm. like my job has become uh, basically learning engineering. It's it's pedagogy, <laughs> pedagogical engineering, I guess is the word. I don't know. Um, <laughs> my job is to figure out and solve problems about how do you get things in your head faster. Mm -hmm. uh, the opera degree actually is the one that feels the least used. Um, although I do feel like the the that degree gave me the excuse to really care about the language learning problem more than another problem it's like whatever more than picking i don't know the, the right pitch out of out of a series of notes or things like that like the it, it gave me the the excuse to focus on it but it was the engineering degree that i really used the whole way through um that's what led towards the method that's what led towards the ability to actually learn how to write a book in the first place that's what led to the company um all of these pieces really came from engineering and it's it's the best part of my job today is when I really get to say, okay, well, company seems to be doing fine. Like, let's, let's fix this learning problem and let's look at all the data in this thing and figure out, is there a way to iterate on this? Is there a way to make it better? So, uh, I think because the mechanical engineering degree was so broad and was really just how do you solve problems? Mm -hmm. It's the one I use all the time. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's education in a nutshell, I think is the most useful for that. Uh, like actually completing university. I studied something that I haven't really used at all, studying international relations, which if you want to be a diplomat, that's great. But, sure. uh, you know, I was just, the international part was what I was interested in, but the political part, I don't care about at all. But I do think the fact of going through university was valuable from the sense of like a lot of it just has to do with values, like being able to solve problems, being disciplined, meeting deadlines, these kind of things that serve you really well going forward in life, even if you don't use your actual studies per se. Um, and I was curious too, based on what you were saying, have you always seen yourself as someone who's entrepreneurial, who did you always have this idea like that you would be your own boss or start your own company, or is it something that just kind of happened because you saw a problem that no one else could really solve? Um, so definitely not. Uh, I, I never thought of myself as entrepreneurial. Um, I did think mm -hmm. of myself as a terrible employee. <laughs> uh, I, I, the idea of people telling me what to do in a workspace just goes poorly um, I figure out reasons why I've been told the wrong thing. I figure out reasons why that's not the most efficient way of going about it. Like I, I get my work done. Um, but if someone is trying to tell me how to get my work done, that goes really, really poorly. Um, I, I would not want to hire myself. Um, <laughs> so that's there. Um, 
I would say most of the source of, of entrepreneurialism has to do with anxiety. Um, it's what I usually tell people in my company. Like the, this company exists, the method exists, the book exists, all of this stuff exists as a result of me being terrified of financial ruin, of being stuck in a place I don't want to be stuck, like all of that. Um, and so I've been like, my reaction to stress is to run at the problem as opposed to run away from it. Um, and so I've just been running a long time. Uh, it is, it is now starting to settle down and I'm starting to look for, you know, how do I find other, other reasons to do, to do work? Uh, how do I find other reasons to just sort of, you know, justify putting in lots of hours into things, but, uh, really up through like, I don't know, 2020, uh, just sort of being, I don't know, it's, it's the process of being chased by tigers into a company is like more or less my experience of, of this whole evolution of, of, of both method book and or method book and company. Mm -hmm. That is like one of those great cases though, of harnessing a weakness in a sense or something that, uh, a lot of people might see as something that would be a reason that you couldn't do it and being able to harden mm -hmm. that into something that's your superpower. I think at the core of every successful, like big, big endeavor is someone who's got a lot of baggage who is dealing with that baggage in a, in a way that is maybe not necessarily healthy for them, but ends up producing a lot of productivity. Uh, I, I don't know of a lot of healthy ways to do this kind of stuff. Um, I'm looking. Well, as we probably both know, like starting a startup is probably not the healthiest option out there as far as if you're like really wanting to take care of yourself. There are saner, saner and healthier options. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, <laughs> Uh, I'll pivot a little bit into the what you guys are doing there with uh, or what what you've kind of built with Fluent Forever. So one of the things I thought was really interesting, I'm not sure if it's something you're still pursuing, but that you intend to learn one language a year for the rest of your life. Uh, I've slowed down quite a bit. Um, and I, I'm aiming to specialize quite a bit. Like I think the, I just kind of fell in love with Japanese. Um, and Japanese is a, is a big problem to solve in terms of trying to get it in your head. Um, there's the foreign service Institute for the U S has like really, really clear delineations between the difficulties of languages for English speakers. Um, they figured out, you know, this is, you know, the, the romance languages, these are level one languages. And then, you know, German's this weird side case. It's level one and a half, but, uh, you know, languages like, like Hebrew and Greek and Russian, these languages with new alphabets, um, that are still like from the same original language tree, but have kind of sitting on another branch. Like those are level two languages and they take twice as long. Um, and then there is this, this little tiny branch that's level three languages that take twice as long as level two or four times as much as level one. Um, and those are, uh, those are two flavors of Chinese. So Mandarin and Wu, um, Korean, Arabic, Japanese, and those languages, you know, if, if you're going to take a half year or a year to learn French, and if that's the rate that you're learning, then you can expect two to four years to learn the same amount of Japanese. And so starting on Japanese was just, was humbling. I mean, it's brutal. Uh, the amount of, the amount of data that is not already in my head that, that needs to be in my head in order to feel comfortable in that language is just immense. Um, I've done a level two language, actually a couple of them. So Russian and Hungarian were, were the ones that I tried in level two. And yeah, those like, those were twice as hard. Like I needed twice as many flashcards to get the same level of comfort. Like that was all really, really clear. Um, but starting on a level three language was just, um, it was an amazing process. It's like, it's, it's daunting and amazing. And it's, it's neat to see how, how much one can learn. 
just to kind of look ahead and say, okay, well, that's a front in front of me. Like, okay, let's, let's start planning. Um, but the idea of saying, okay, well, I'm just going to knock this out in a year or something like that. Like that's a, not super realistic and B not at a depth that I decided I wanted. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting with this language learning problem is looking at goals. I think you can, for Hungarian, for instance, my goal was just, can I have a conversation in that language? Not every conversation. Can I have a conversation? Can I, can I chat about some things I care about? Um, and I ultimately got to that goal, but that's different than me being able to, for instance, watch Hungarian television. I can't do that. I'm, I'm not in a position where I can watch Hungarian television. I am in a position where with this specific tutor who I became a friend with, like we can chat for an hour and we can have a fun time in Hungarian. And that's as far as I wanted to go, but I could have gone further. And I, there are people who need to go further. There are people who want to go further. And I didn't, I wanted to stop and I wanted to go on to Japanese at that point. And because every one of these goals is so different. I mean, with Japanese, in this particular case, I do want to be able to watch Japanese television. Um, I want Japanese to become actually my best language. Um, and I, I spent six years living in Europe and in, in Austria. I was speaking German the whole time. I had my, my graduate degree was in German. Like that language is really, really solid, but I want my Japanese to be better than that. And that is going to take years. Um, at this point, I am figuring out ways to learn faster. Um, Japanese is a great, uh, I don't know, there's a word for this thing, but it's, it's a great, like, like proving grounds. Okay. Guinea pig maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Or like sandbox. It's like a beautiful sandbox because it's the biggest possible sandbox for an English speaker. Um, and so anytime I find something that allows me to learn a little bit faster, like using it in Japanese is, I guess, four times more effective than using it in French because I'm going to be using it four times longer. Uh, and so. I've, I've loved that language for that purpose. I've loved the language for just how nuts it is compared to English. I don't mean objectively. I just mean for me. It's, it's so far away from me. It's, it's the equivalent of learning Martian, um, in terms of the amount of data I, I start with. Cause you, you learn English and then you learn, let's say, you know, French and you already realize, Hey, I, I've, you know, 10,000 words that I didn't know I knew as long as I know how to repronounce them. <laughs> you got almost none of that with Japanese. Like there's just no overlaps. And so it's, it's as if you were learning something that just hasn't, has been invented in a completely other place, which it has, <laughs> which it has. Exactly. Uh, and so, uh, I, I in, intend to stick with Japanese for a good long time. Um, there will be a point where I want to switch to Hebrew, um, mostly because the idea of picking up a Semitic language and, and understanding how it feels to process thoughts in that way, uh, because their grammatical system is is kind of amazing and very different from everything I've seen. Um, that's an experience I want to have. Uh, but beyond that, like I don't I don't need to keep acquiring things. I I, I, I do language learning for the purpose of finding new experiences and, and finding new ways of like experiencing the world. I don't even really do it to converse. Um, the conversing is mostly again a proving ground uh, of of how I can get there. Um, and I don't know how many new experiences there are available to me. Like really getting Japanese down, that is a new experience. Really getting something like Hebrew Arabic down, that will be a new experience. Um, but then I need to start really searching of like, what are, what are the really bizarre grammar, grammatical systems out there? Like that's, that, that will be target number three. Um, and I'm a long way away from target number three at this point. So you kind of shifted this goal from doing, I don't know, a mile wide to doing a mile deep in. Yeah. Uh, in in Japanese at at the very least for sure yeah
And one of the, I had a couple of questions there, but one of them was just for you, what do you consider fluency in the language or what do you consider that I've learned enough of this language, I can move on to the next one in a sense? It's tricky. I think the, we tend to use these, these labels that, that don't mean a lot. The word fluency, like it's, it's, you know, part of my company name, it's part of my book name. And yet I, I hate that word. Like it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it means I feel good. Uh, and you can have a person who feels good in a coffee shop who is, uh, by the European scale, B1 on the CEFR scale, um, and feels good and feels fluent. And there's nothing, you can't tell that person, well, I'm sorry, you're feeling too good about this. You should feel worse <laughs> about what you know. <laughs> like that person is fluent in coffee shop Spanish. And that's legitimate. Um, whereas you can have other people who will never feel comfortable. They just, they, they will, they will keep learning words and they will keep, they will eventually hit a level that is, uh, beyond the average native speaker. And they will still say, I'm not fluent because like, this is, I feel like, what is that? Is that the Dunning-Kruger curve? The idea that the more, you know, the, the less confident you get. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is a real thing. And you certainly, the, the, the longer I spend in Japanese, the more I feel like, oh my God, this is endless. Like this is just, there's yeah. so much to learn. Um, and so will I ever feel fluent, fluent in Japanese? Like probably will, will not feel fully comfortable in that thing. Um, but at a point that I can do like live translation for someone, uh, which is a brutal thing to do. Uh, if, if I can do that, if I can like really watch anime series comfortably and, and feel good about them, if I can read manga like that, at that point I will say, okay, Gabe, like chill, like you're probably fluent. Um, Time for I the think, next language. Yeah. I mean, I think the, 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 the European scale is a nice one. I think the, the, uh, the CEFR scale that goes, you know, A0, A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2, um, is a valuable scale. And I think C1 is a reasonable place to put the line where if you, ha if you have a C1 certification, I think you can pretty reasonably say to anyone, Hey, like I'm fluent in this thing, mm -hmm. uh, and not be unreasonable. Uh, but that said, like I showed up to Austria with a C1 certification in German and I went to a, like a normal, like a farmer's market and I died. Like it was just brutal. Like they were speaking to me in dialect and I had, n I, someone gave me a, a, like a two minute speech on how to take care of a basil plant. And this is with the C1 certification. So like, is that fluency? Well, like I could, I could handle a whole graduate degree in German. So I think reasonably so, but did it feel like fluency? Like, hell no, that was, that was awful. Yeah. I, I really, but I guess like been, yeah, go on. plopping you down, plopping you down in Scotland, maybe in, in the Highlands or something sure. and trying to have a similar conversation about, processing whiskey or something like that, maybe you could be equally lost. A hundred percent. And so I think fluency <laughs> is so context dependent and so goal dependent that I think it's, it ends up being a really wobbly word. Um, the direction that I've been trying to head is, is actually away from fluency in terms of like how we frame the company and frame goals for people who are using our app. Um, and is more leading towards personalized fluency, which is to say, what do you wish to be fluent in? Do you wish to be fluent in going to the coffee shop? We can do that for you. Do you wish to be fluent in, like, I, I don't want to learn Cantonese. I want to be fluent in dim sum. That's what I actually want from Cantonese. I have no interest in that language, except that I do want to be able to walk into a dim sum restaurant and have an actual conversation with the waiter about, like, what's good food here. And mm -hmm. that's, like, very achievable. Cantonese is going to be a brutally difficult language for me to learn. That's another Japanese, basically, in terms of difficulty. But uh, just dim sum? Like, that should be a three-month project. Um, and so 
And, and that counts. Like, that should count as fluency for me if I can have a comfortable conversation. And so I feel like comfortable conversation and something I want to learn about, that seems like a more meaningful uh, label for me than am I fluent? Yeah. Because it's so much more specific. It's uh, Yeah, you were talking about goals, and that's much, that's much better that you're reflecting a lot about what do I need the language for mm. and aligning your goals like that because so many, I mean, most of our audience, they're English learners. So like so many English learners, they just say, I want to be fluent in English, but right. they never actually reflect like, what does that mean? And I think for most people that probably means like speaking it in some sense, like they speak their native language, speaking yes. it effortlessly, but you don't need to know it. You don't maybe need to know about how to talk about uh, gardening in English. If you're not actually interested in gardening, you'd need to like, be focused on, you know, what are the things you really want to know? I mean, why do people learn the word carrot? Exactly. Why? Like, yeah. it's, a, <laughs> it's not a useful word unless you really love carrots. I had Shannon Kennedy on and she called this contextual fluency, which I really mm. liked that she was saying she was also learning Japanese. And she said that her goal in Japanese was to be able to have a conversation about the Legend of Zelda with a Japanese person. And I was like, okay, that's very, very specific, but love it. You know, that's awesome that you can connect with a a Japanese person or another Japanese speaker and and have a conversation about something that really interests you. Mm, I love that. That's nice. So, but yeah, I have the same, like, uh, my, my mom is learning Spanish with Duolingo and that's one of the things I always point out to her is most of it's not very practical for, I mean, she, she wants to be able to speak Spanish when she comes and visits me and sure. it's like, okay, most of that's not that practical for the situations you're going to want to be using it in. So I've tried to to gently push her towards the direction of, of actually having classes with a teacher who could have her get that, that confidence and practice with uh, practical situations. But yeah, no, I mean the, the, this, I like that, that the phrase of contextual fluency is really beautiful. That's, that's really, 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 really well put. So, uh, and I really like like the goal of being able to watch anime in the native language in Japanese and stuff. I think that's a, that's a really great goal to have is just being able to watch a series that you love in the language that you're learning. I think you kind of answered it, but I was going to ask you like how you choose your next language. And you mentioned it has in some sense to do with like the actual challenge of, of being able to have it be something, uh, a new challenge in a sense, right? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a way of thinking that, that accompanies each language. And I don't really mean, um, this idea of like, Oh, if you learn French, then you'll be more romantic or like these sorts of ideas. I think it's more just realizing that you can look at it, you can look at a language and that when you first come at it, when you first start, uh, even taking a sentence part and, and translating each piece and seeing how the grammar works, um, there's a point where you look at that and you're like, that is a crazy puzzle. Like what an, what an absurd way of an, an insane, like, like, I don't mean absurd in a negative way. I just mean just like shocking where you can, you can, you can store that information over there at the end of the sentence. You can store this information in the middle you can store, uh, you know, who's involved by just adding tags to each word instead of conjugating them, like, wow, like that's, that's what a crazy puzzle. What a, what a crazy way that people have come up with expressing the thoughts in their head and getting them into someone else's head. Um, and at first it's like this, this, this puzzle you're on the outside of, and the idea of eventually internalizing that so that that's how you think that feels neat to me. Uh, and it ends up being why I enjoy language learning generally. Um, and so this idea of, having a conversation with someone like that's less interesting. I have people I can have conversations with in English. Um, yes, this broadens the group of people I could talk to, but I'm never going to talk to all the English speakers. I might get more interesting people or people who have uh, more wildly varying opinions. 
And that's cool. And that's, that's valuable, but that isn't the primary reason I do it. I, I do it because I'm interested in how my brain can wrap itself around a new problem. Uh, and so finding new languages that, that present really, really unique problems to me, um, that gives me the main thing that I'm looking for. So my, my motivations for language learning tend to be a little bit off <laughs> from what most people do language learning for. That is, that is, uh, quite a different motivation, but it's interesting what you're saying that, uh, for you, like the point of view at all about being able to speak with someone who has like a completely different worldview. So for example, someone from Japan mm-hmm. probably has a very different way of thinking than someone from, you know, uh, Chicago. Yes. Uh, so what's your kind of perspective on that? Or is, is, is that part of the motivation for you? Historically, it has not been. Um, it is becoming more and more. So, I mean, I'm, we're sort of talking about the thing that I've been doing over, I guess, a span since I was about 20 or 22. Um, and I'm 38 now. I'm a wildly different person than I was when I was 22. Um, and so I'm starting to find points where I'm like, wait, actually, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in talking to people who have new worldviews, where if you ask me when in my 20s, like people are terrifying. I don't want to deal with people. Uh, I still think people are terrifying and I still have some, some reticence about dealing with people, but I'm seeing that there's enough gain there. There's enough like fascination with how people think that maybe that's something that I want. And so like, I'm, I'm starting to also realize even if these, with these Japanese lessons, like interacting with my tutor is something I, I enjoy. I, I, I like that person, uh, not just the things that I can get out of them in terms of language content. Um, and if that's interesting with that person, well, what about other people? Uh, so I think my motivations are changing over time. I think it absolutely is the case that, uh, the perspectives coming out of Japan are wildly different from the perspectives I see coming out of, you know, random people. I mean, in Chicago, um, I think watching my own perspectives land on my tutor in this particular case and seeing points where his worldview gets expanded, that feels good. And then also similarly watching like my worldview get expanded, that, that also feels good. So, um, connecting with people is something that I've, I've shied away from in my twenties. Uh, and it's something that I'm starting to move more towards in my late thirties. Um, and so it may be the case that, that you talk to me in my forties and I'm picking up a language that has nothing interesting in terms of grammar that is new to me. Uh, you know, Portuguese will be a duplicate of French, Italian, and Spanish. Like there's nothing really new there in terms of new problems to solve. Um, but I might be really interested in what Portuguese people think. And that might be a completely new motivation that I never would have had in my twenties, but I'm still going to do it anyway, because it might be interesting. So like, uh, I think dealing with the fact that I, I am changing over time is, is something I haven't quite figured out in terms of what that, that ultimate plan is, but that's cause I'm not going to be able to do that until I'm there. All right. Of course. Uh, I was going to backtrack a little bit, just the, the whole thing about worldviews. I think that is one of the magical things about when you connect to people from other places, especially if you can work on yourself to the point where you can listen to people without having that immediate judgment pop up of like, oh, that person's weird, like, you know, whatever, and being able to actually kind of take it as, oh, that's interesting that they think that that way, that's different than how we think and kind of digging more into that, like being curious about that. So that's a whole nother, that's definitely one of the things I think that drew me to language learning is just actually like uh, there's that quote from Nelson Mandela, I believe it is, that, you know, if you speak to a man in a language that he understands, that goes to his head. If you speak to him in his language, that goes to his heart. And I think when I started to kind of realize that, okay, I could communicate with people in English, 
and that's well and good. But when I speak to someone in their actual language, it's a little bit of a different interaction. Yes. So yeah, I you, think that you that's get a really... different subset of their, their personality. It's 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 really intense, actually. I think as people really start experiencing it, they they start seeing, oh my god, there's a whole new person in there. Yeah, that's really like a big uh, a big aha moment for a lot of people. I, I know it was for for me. Yeah. No, it's 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 special. And I was going to pivot into another question a little bit. I thought could be interesting based on what we're talking about, but um, do you kind of see that there are benefits of learning more than one language? So, I mean, that from you and I are both native English speakers, but a lot of people in the world obviously are learning English as the global language. But say for an English learner, do you think that there are benefits for that person to learn a third language? The third language is always going to be easier than the second. Um, I, there are some people out there who have... Um, intentionally tried to pick the easiest language they possibly could for their second one. And some people like they're just jumping straight to Esperanto because it's constructed and like easy built to be easy uh, so that they can get faster with their third language. I think that's, um, I think it's a cool idea. It's a little bit, um, I don't know. It's very optimized. I don't know if it actually saves you time ultimately, but it's like, it's a really, it's taking the kind of optimization stuff that I do and, 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 sort of now pathologize a little bit of being like, maybe I shouldn't do that so much. Uh, and it's, it's taken that to the next level of being like, no, no, I'm, I, the only language I care about is language number three. So I'm going to work on language number two on a throwaway language. Um, that's a little intense, but still, like, I think the, there is something to be said for watching yourself get the general gist of language learning, as opposed to, I have this one English problem in front of me and I need to solve it. Um, I think the idea of being able to more take it as a more global problem and say, Hey, what is it like to get information in my head period? And this is, you know, languages happen to be a style of information. And can I, how general can I get on this? Um, I think it, it can give you some lessons about learning more generally that I don't think you get from picking up your second language. Um, I think the idea of, of, for instance, me looking at, you know, how do I learn how to write a book, which is unrelated to learning how to, you know, speak French or something like that. Um, or how do I learn how to run a company? Um, these are problems that if I only picked up one language, I don't think I could have used those, those learnings to really benefit that experience. Um, but once you hit language three or language four, then you start understanding how your brain works. Um, and I think you can then apply that to really any problem. So, I, I like that piece. Um, I, I like the idea that if I can kind of get, get a better sense of what my hardware is, like how, how my brain works, that I can get better at any kind of problem like that. That feels like I've just kind of upgraded me. <laughs> uh, and so I, I do like that part. And I think you really do only get that part once you hit language three. Uh, this might be kind of a stupid question, but I, I know you've studied some of the neurology behind language acquisition. Why is it that a third language is easier than the the second one? Like say your native language, then the first foreign language being the second one, and then any additional foreign language after that, it, it tends to get easier and easier. I think there's a, I think there's two bodies of information you're actually learning when you learn a second language. I think one of them is the actual content in the language. So what's the vocabulary, what's the grammar, all that stuff. Um, and I think there's a second body of information, which is how do I learn how to think in two languages? Or sorry, how do I learn how to think in more than one language? I think that's one chunk. Um, and I think maybe on top of that, there is just how do I, how do I get this kind of information in my head quickly? Uh, and you, you stumble over those two the first time. 
you're not going for maximum efficiency for your, for the, the first language you learn for your second language. Um, you're, you're going to do things inefficiently. There's going to be lessons you learn where you're like, Oh my God, I spent six months reading this grammar book and it was just a waste. Like, wow. I mean, I still got to the end, but who I, if I did this a second time, I never would have done it that way. Or like, and that sort of style of thing is, is these are lessons that you've learned for the future that you never get to apply if you stop there. And so I think as you pick up all these, these pieces of grammar and vocabulary, like, yeah, you're not going to be able to duplicate those into language number three, but all of the information you learn about how you learn and all the information you learn about how not to learn, uh, the mistakes that you could avoid the next time, um, all of that stuff immediately applies to language number three on day one. Um, and so I think that's, I think the main thing you pick up and that also applies to language number four. Like I, I certainly found that there were lessons I learned from my third language that I could apply to my fourth. Uh, same thing with four to five, like every single time I picked up stuff, even with, with Japanese, which I guess technically is like my eighth, I think or something, seventh, eighth. Um, I'm picking up a bunch of stuff where if I, if I could go back all the way, I wouldn't learn my earlier languages at all. Like, like I did. Uh, so each of those moments of learning are things where they're just wasted unless you do another one. So I think that's most of it. Hey there, Real Lifer. Have you downloaded the Real Life English app yet? On the app, Andrea and I will guide you beyond the classroom to live, learn, and even speak English in the real world. So how do we do this? To start with, you can listen to the Real Life English podcast and Beyond Borders talk show, even this very episode with digital transcripts so that you can follow along and develop your listening fluency. Plus, check dozens of definitions of all the most difficult vocabulary, idioms, phrasal verbs, slang, and so much more that you won't find anywhere else or in any other podcast. And how would you like to develop real-life speaking confidence at the touch of a button by speaking with other learners while making friends across cultures? Sounds like a dream, right? Well, now with the Real Life app, it will be a dream come true. Download the app to listen to our podcast with transcripts and definitions whenever and wherever you want and speak with people from all around the world. What are you waiting for? Join our global community today by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by going to www.reallifeglobal.com slash app, that's A-P-P, or simply search for the Real Life English app in the Google Play or Apple App Store today and let us guide you beyond the classroom to live and learn and speak English in the real world. Ah, yeah. Is there, would you say, like any benefits to learning two languages in tandem, more or less at the same time? I really dissuade people from doing that thing. Um, languages tend to interfere with each other. The more related they are, the more they interfere. So you're learning Italian and Spanish at the same time, like that's, a, oof. <laughs> I mean, Spanish and Italian are in a constant fight in my head, like regardless of which one I try to speak, like the other one will attempt to come out. Um, but if I had learned them at the same time, that would have been way worse. Uh, because our memories are linked by, by time as well. It's, it's not just what is the content, but it's when did I learn it. Uh, and so if you learn two things on the same day that are closely related, they will interfere with each other. And that interference is, um, is quite substantial. Like you can, this is actually a, uh, a thing people trip over in, in all language learning. Um, they tend to learn things in categories because that tends to feel like satisfying. So I learn all my colors on one day and all my 
whatever numbers the next day. Um, because numbers are numbers, because they all kind of look and sound similar, they, they, they're the same category. Um, if you learn them on the same day, it's going to mean that they will fight each other. You will forget which one was three and which one was four. You know, they kind of sound similar. They, they cover similar topics. Um, and that's been studied actually quite well. Uh, and the, the amount of penalty you're paying for learning, you know, the number three and the number four on the same day is 50%, uh, which is to say that you will remember the word for three and four half as long compared to someone who learned them on different days. Um, also, the day that you learn it, it will take you twice as long compared to how long it would have taken you if you split that time up, you know, today and then three days from now. Uh, and so it's this like huge cost. Like that's, that's not like, you know, okay, it's going to take me 10% longer. That's, it's taking me twice as long to learn it in the first place and twice as long to even keep it retained in the first place. That's how intense interference can be. And so you attempting to, you giving yourself that kind of impediment across two whole languages, like that sounds awful. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I get the I get the desire why you might want to do that. I think there's why people want to do that. I've had that desire. I was working on Hungarian, and I was like, no, but I'm really itching for this Japanese thing. I just want it. Like, give me, give me both. I just I want to go go to the next thing because it's new and it's exciting. And Hungarian, I just feel like this. I'm in this long plateau, this intermediate plateau, and I want to get out of it. So maybe I could just distract myself with this Japanese thing that's going to go faster in the first stages. Um, but you got to fight that thing because uh, having two languages that interfere just means you're spending basically twice as long on both of the languages. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, I also wanted to just ask you about your own uh, time management because you're you're running a company. It seems like you're you're crazy busy with with that and with other things in your life. So how, where does language learning fit in? How do you make time for that, especially with a language that you've pointed out is as complex and difficult to learn as Japanese is? It's a fight. Um, so I, I think scheduling pieces in your week that are blocked out um, seems to be one way to address that fight, especially when there are people involved in that. So having, like I have two tutoring sessions a week. I have one on Monday, one on Friday. Um, and those tutoring sessions tend to be based on stuff that I am reviewing. At least one of them is a review session. Um, and so that review session only matters if I've done my reviews that week. <laughs> Uh, and so I don't want to show up to my tutor having done no reviews because then that would be like a waste of both of our times. Um, so that has helped to some extent to keep me on track. Um, the idea of building habits that are uh, at fixed times with fixed triggers, I think is also has been historically really, really helpful. So the idea of like, oh, I'm brushing my teeth, pull out my phone. Like teeth equals phone. Phone goes out review my flashcards. This is when that starts. Um, that has been helpful. It reduces the sort of, um, the, the, the hill I have to jump over in terms of motivation. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. I mean, when you get really, really busy, there is a sense of, well, I'm brushing my teeth and I could review my flashcards, but I also could jump into Slack and like deal with the stuff that's, that's hitting me today. Um, there's, you know, a whole bunch of work emails I could do while I'm doing this. And if they're stressing me out enough, I will sometimes give in to that. And I'll be dealing with my work interview uh, emails and I will never get to my language learning that day. And then I might do the same thing the next day and then the next day. And then I hit my Friday tutoring session. I'm like, oh, I actually don't have much to talk about. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. Um, I think the, 
the idea of daily habits ends up being the most valuable chunk that I've found so far. Um, I am curious about what it would be like to have a person every day of the week. Um, that's a thing that we've actually been experimenting with in, a, in some products we've been building for Spanish of what happens if you talk to someone every day for 10 minutes, um, which has been working really well. I mean, as it turns out, if you have a person every day, then you think about Spanish every day. So like that's, that's been really, really effective. Um, but it is, it is a hard thing and I haven't solved it. Um, I've been looking for solutions for it, but I think dealing with just human motivation generally, like that's, that's a hard thing to deal with. Uh, and I, I don't have any great, perfect answers to it. Yeah. But I mean, the tips you gave, I think, so it sounds like on the one hand, just having the accountability of having a tutor, having Absolutely. someone that's going to check in with you to be like, okay, did you do what you said you're going to do? Did you do what you were supposed to do today? Uh, and just in having that, it sounds like you have like the habits built in the habit pairing of like brushing my teeth, doing flashcards, drinking coffee, reading the newspaper, whatever. And, uh, then having those two combined. So it's like the, the motivation from the accountability for, I think for most people that tends to be a really good motivator because we don't want to let people down. Right. So we don't want to arrive to that tutoring session or to that class and say, you know, I didn't, I didn't do uh, what I was supposed to do. So I think that is really, really great advice. Um, all right. And I wanted to go into Fluent Forever. So you mentioned flashcards. I imagine you're probably using your own or, or using some something very similar since you, in a sense, invented that. Um, and we kind of started getting a little bit into neurology, talking about, you know, second and third language acquisition. But neurologically speaking, uh, why is the Fluent Forever method just so effective? And I was wondering if maybe you could even explain some of the science behind sure. it. Happy to. Um, there's a few different pieces. So basically, I look at language learning as a memory problem. I think that's, I think, the most important framing piece, which is, uh, I think a lot of people look at language learning in all sorts of ways. They're like, oh, this is about, you know, conversing. This is about how do you, you know, take care of your own psychology. They're like, that's all true. But the hard part about language learning is that there's a ton of data that is not in your head that you want in your head. <laughs> Um, and you need to connect it in the right way. Uh, so the idea of just you having memorized a dictionary, like that's not you becoming fluent in the language. Um, and so then if you look at it as a memory problem, then the question is, okay, well, what, what are the, the blocks in my way? How do I, how do I solve this memory problem in the most efficient way possible? And so the first block in your way is phonetic. And if you don't deal with that phonetic block of this language sounds weird and so I can't remember it then you will always have that block in your way. Like that's just always going to sit right in front of you. Um, and so the first step of all this stuff is kind of this sidestep. It's like, a, it's almost unrelated to the rest of the method. And yet it's really key, which is spend a month fixing that problem. Fix the fact that if you were a Japanese speaker, rake and lake sound the same to you. And so any word that involves an R or an L will not be easy to remember. And that's just going to be the case. If, if, uh, like, if you're trying to learn Hungarian and you are from almost any other language, um, then the difference between, let's say, kor and kor, that difference isn't big. Those sound the same. And so what are you supposed to do about that? How are you supposed to remember words that include a long O or a short O? Because they're going to be everywhere because it's one of the central vowels of the language. Um, and so, if you can't hear the difference between sounds in your target language, which will almost always be the case, 
then you have to fix that early or else that's just going to be sitting in your way for the rest of the time. In addition, that's going to be sitting in the way in terms of you building bad pronunciation habits. The Japanese speaker who doesn't take the time to fix the rake and lake problem will be saying a Japanese R for every one of those words. And if those are words that they say very, very often, which is to say there's lots of words in the English language that involve those two letters, um, then they will have practiced incorrectly those words thousands upon thousands of times by the time they decide, okay, maybe I'm going to deal with this problem. Uh, and so it's, it's a matter of building bad habits. Like not doing this is a matter of building bad habits, leaving a barricade in front of you that prevents you from actually remembering anything or at least remembering things that well. Um, also convincing native speakers that you know less than you know. Because the moment you show up in front of a native speaker with a thick accent, they're going to be like, okay, well, screw this. I'm just going to speak your language if they know it. Um, which means you're getting less input, which means you're learning slower again. And so there's like all these things that, that are in your way from the, the, from the phonetic side. So um, there's a really, really easy way to fix the phonetic thing, which is just to say, hey, if you're trying to learn Hungarian and you can't hear the difference between kor and kor, then all I'm going to do is say one of those two words at random and ask you the question, was this the long one or the short one? Kor. Which one was it? And you go, uh, I think it was the long one. You're like, no, 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 that was actually the short one. That's it. That's the only thing you need to do. You need someone to assemble those little pieces and put them in front of you in the form of tests and then within like a week or two, it's not a lot of work. This is a week or two at 10, 20 minutes a day. Um, you will start hearing all of those sounds. Within about a month, you will have mastered those sounds. Um, and then that actually will inform your accent. The reason why accents are hard to fix when you're past the age of one, which is like the only, that's the only critical period for language learning is one year old. Uh, when like people say, oh, when you're past the age of seven, you can never fix an accent. When, when you're past the age of 12, you can never get to fluency. Like all that stuff is, there's no science behind any of that. The only science is that between the ages of six months and 12 months, we have a little window where, uh, all languages, phonetics, all kind of are, uh, basically the same to us. Uh, and so that's this little point where we're extra ripe for pulling in these sounds. But past the age of one, we're all the same. There's no real difference in our neurology. And so the only way to fix issues like rake versus lake or, you know, core versus core is to do these kinds of tests and do them for a few weeks and then you're done. Um, and at that point, that starts influencing our accent as well, because if you can't hear the difference between rake and lake, how on earth are you supposed to correct yourself? Uh, and so does that actually, does it stick? It like, sticks. So yeah. you're just doing it for a few weeks or a month. Okay. So you don't need to like go back and review that. No, not really. I mean, there's some value in you reviewing the ones that are hard. And so it's one of the reasons why we bring back the ones that you make mistakes on. But no, it's it's like a it's a quick intervention and then you're done for the most part. And the other follow-up I was going to ask there is just, uh, is it too late if you like say, okay, you're a Japanese person, you've been learning English for two years or for five years, whatever the case, and you've never done this. Can you do it for like a month now at this point and still have the same benefits? Yes. Um, the only difference is that if you've been learning uh, English for a really long time as a Japanese speaker, and so you have these sort of habits of how to, how to pronounce it, then you can fix your ear so that now you can hear it. Um, and then you will still have your accent as like a groove that you've dug. And so the way you fix that is you start digging a new groove. Um, and this is actually where, where like, uh, Idaosa Ness's stuff is like really, really valuable, um, where he, he will recommend people come up with a character. 
like a really overblown character. Like here's, you know, oh, the telenovela person in Spanish, or here's like this, this like, you know, Barack Obama, and I'm just going to be Barack Obama whenever I'm speaking English. And so you find some character that, that you uh, find is either interesting or funny or just resonates with you. And you say, I'm going to pretend to be that guy. And as you pretend to be that guy and you're like, hello, I'm John, Wh-, whatever this like overblown American accent, you create that as this new character. And you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I have my normal accent. That's me. And then I have my character guy. And that's, that's not me. That's Joe. And I'm just going to be Joe all day. And as you practice being Joe, what you will eventually realize is that, wait, now I actually know how to do a really good accent. And in fact, if I keep digging that groove, eventually that accent, that could just be me. I could just be Joe. And you've, you've kind of gone, kind of gone around the other way. You've decided I'm going to create this artificial thing. And ultimately you realize this is actually more real than anything else. Um, and so for people who have long grooves that they've, they've built over years, this idea of building a new groove in the form of a character and then becoming that character and finding that that's more real, uh, that ends up being the route through. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting too, because it's almost, I don't know, you could even give it a name or whatever the case is, like you were saying, call it Joe. But the, I think a lot of people, they have like this, they feel awkward, right? If speaking an accent that's not their own, like getting, getting rid of that accent because it maybe it feels, uh, ingenuine or something like that. And doing it like this, it's like inventing another character, like you recommended, almost helps you to may split it away a little bit from that awkwardness that you feel of uh, taking away your identity. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a, there's a process in language learning where you do lose your identity if you're really, really doing it seriously. Um, there's, I mean, I've done immersion programs a number of times where you're not allowed to speak English in these particular programs or not allowed to speak anything other than the target language. And the first few weeks of that program, you lose yourself. You're just like, who, who am I? If I can't be, you know, smart or witty or whatever it is that, that defines me, my personality, then like, who am I? Do I even, am I even here anymore? No one can see me. And so like, that's the biggest stress in immersion programs is this like loss of identity. But what you find at the end of them is that there is a new person there and it is, it's still you, but it's a subset of you. It's a, it's a different like excerpt of your personality. And that actually is like some of the best stuff you can get out of language learning is, is meeting these people, you know, meeting Joe, the American, where you're like, wait, I am Joe, the American. Like there's parts of me that really resonate with this and I don't have to be all of myself. I can be this part of myself where certain aspects of my personality are amplified and certain ones are are sort of diminished. And that, that allows me new perspectives into looking at myself. Um, and I think it's one of the biggest gifts that people are not aware of when they come into language learning. They're trying to learn how to say a thing, but ultimately they start discovering new parts of their personality. Like, I think that's, that's a, a glorious part of this process that most people don't get to experience until they hit the end. Right. That's really, really interesting. It's something I've, I've like felt myself in speaking different languages and stuff in kind of just a natural way that I feel a little bit different when I speak Catalan than when I speak German. My German's really rusty nowadays, or, or when I speak, uh, I don't know, English, or when I speak, you know, French, for example. So uh, it's kind of interesting to actually characterize a little bit that you're kind of like these different people, but still, it's you just with your personality coming out in different ways, depending on the language. And in some sense, too, if you're, especially if you're, you said like immersion, if you're actually going to the place, you start to kind of like mimic cultural things, right? 
Uh, so like going to Brazil, you might be a lot more warm and open and fun loving and stuff, carefree. And if you go to Germany, you might be like a little bit more, um, you know, within your limits and stuff and more, more, more straight cut and whatnot. So it's kind of interesting to, to think of it in that way. And like, you can, you can take pieces of that. Like, I think that's, that's one of the neat pieces of this is that you can go and be super gregarious in Brazil or in my case, like, uh, Italy was like that for me. Just like wow, I just feel so happy here. Like <laughs> this is just such a the food is so good and everyone's so nice and like this is so like weather's so awesome. Um, and there's you can you can discover yourself in that context and be like look at look at me acting in a way that I didn't know I was capable of acting. Why don't I take some of that into my English self? Um, and so I, I think it is a really neat way of self exploration that you can do through language learning that, that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Um, so the pronunciation chunk is this first ingredient, but once it's done, it's done. And the rest of it kind of focuses on sort of general memorization. Um, and the general memorization pieces that I think are important have to do with, there's kind of two categories. One category has to do with how memorable is the information that you're learning. And the other category has to do with, well, when do you repeat it so that it sticks and how are you repeating it so that it sticks? Um, let's start with the, like, Keeping things memorable. Um, if I tell you that the Hungarian word for camera is finikép like you're going to forget that in now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're going to forget that now partly because the pronunciation uh, is is hard and we haven't dealt with that stage yet. And so I've, I've given you this terrible disadvantage. Um, but if I then switch it and I say, okay, now we're going to learn the Martian word for camera and it's going to be mognog. Uh, and I'm going to use a bunch of American sounding uh, phonemes, then that's going to be more manageable. You can hold on to that longer. Um, but even that is not going to stick very long because you are not thinking about cameras. You're not thinking about the camera, the, the you know, the Mognog on your iPhone. You're not thinking about uh, the idea that, you know, there's a shutter that you, there's a button you have to press and it's going to, you know, take a picture. You're not thinking about pictures. Um, also, because I've made up this word and because there is no Martian language that we have, um, I can't, you don't know the word for shutter or picture or frame or photograph or photographer in Martian because the words don't even exist. Um, and so when we talk about your word camera in English, there is a whole cloud of memories associated with that word that allows you to retain it. There's a whole cloud of emotions associated with that word. Like, what did you feel when you got your first smartphone? Like, that's in the word camera for you. Uh, what do you feel when you see, you know, the, the 700th announcement of a new, the completely new iPhone camera that's the same as the last one, but a little bit better? Like, the, the eye rolling that might occur with that thing. Like, that emotion is in the word camera, whereas none of that is in the word mognog. Now it is because we've been talking about it a little bit. And so you're like, all right, well, that's the weird one. But like, if I just told you the translation, it would not be. And so people trying to learn languages by just memorizing translations, they're, they're missing all of the information. Like translation is actually, like when you're talking about the word camera, the translation of that word to some other language is not actually one of the memories that allows you to hold on to that word. That is an extra fact about cameras. Uh, but it, does, it has nothing to do with the central part of that word. Um, and so the idea of trying to spin your wheels uh, by memorizing this extra fact about a word in Spanish and thinking that's the same as learning the actual word in Spanish, like that's, that's where people get off on the wrong direction um, because that thing is so not memorable. 
Um, we have filters in our brains designed to push that kind of information out um, because the idea of an association between Mognog and camera, that's just a sound association. The only way you can hold on to that is by in your head repeating Mognog camera, Mognog camera, Mognog camera. That's what you're actually holding on to. You're holding on to the association between the sound of camera and the sound of Mognog. And we don't associate, like sound associations are actually things we, we actively push out of our memories. Because we don't want to memorize everything we hear. It's too much. If you verbatim remembered every word that happened in this interview, you would be very tired by the end of the day. Like, this would suck. Like, you don't want that. You want to remember the three or four facts that, that you thought were interesting little snippets, little like, oh, that was a good piece. I could probably excerpt that for like a small little YouTube bit. Like, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. And that's what your and your your brain is holding onto that stuff not because it's memorized a whole bunch of audio verbatim, but it's memorized that because that concept inspired some emotion in you of like, whoa, that was a cool quote. I like that thing. And so we remember emotional content. We remember stuff that is either conceptual, uh, at the the very least, we remember things that are conceptual, which is to say, if I take out my phone and I snap a picture of you and I'm like, hey, like put that pose for the mognog, like at that point. You think, oh, what the hell was that? What's the, uh, oh, oh, that was him saying some weird word for camera. At that point, that's conceptual. If in that moment you were like, that was hilarious. Like, what, like, like I, I never thought someone could use a word like that. Now that's emotional. And that's actually something you store. And so at the very least, you need something that you can see or at least think of. Like, okay, this is a thing. A mognog is a thing that takes pictures. And at best, you have something that has, uh, not even best. Next step up is it has emotional resonance of like, oh, that was kind of funny or weird. And then the actual best is I need a, I need a Mognog. I care about this thing. This is an object that I want. Um, and at the point where it's actually personal, um, that is a point where your brain really actually holds on to these things. And so that's that first chunk. And so the way we deal with that chunk is we say, hey, here's Mognog. Yes, here's a translation of it. But this is what Mognogs look like. This is the kinds of Mognogs that the Martians use. Or like if we're doing Hungarian, things like that. If we're learning like Kutya is the word for dog, you get to see what are the what are the breeds of dog that Hungarians actually blog about, which will not be the same as the word dog. Uh, the, the, the search results online will be different for every single normal word. Um, if you're learning like the, the classic example I tend to bring in terms of like Russian, for instance, is uh, they teach you that the word devushka means girl. But if you look for girl in English, you will find a whole mixture of girls from the age of like five-year-old girl and seven-year-old girl and nine-year-old girl and 18-year-old girl, the whole range of girl. Um, and if you look for devushka, you get a whole bunch of 18-year-old girls, often in bikinis. They are really, really sexualized. And think of that as you will, but like devushka is like a, is, is a sexualized word and it is an inappropriate word to use for your five-year-old niece. There's another word, dievichka, the diminutive of that word, that is completely appropriate and is the correct word to use for your five- to seven-year-old niece. And the moment that you're like, dievichka, girl, same thing, like you've missed everything. Um, and so the way we try to address this is by showing that to you and saying, hey, here are the search results for dievichka. Pick a few. Choose what, what you want to store for this word. We're going to give you a lot of options. You choose one to four of those options and say, this is mine, or draw it. Look at these options and then draw a picture of what you think Dievushka is. 
Um, and at that point, now this is a this is a real memory. This is a memory that you've interacted with at the very least conceptually because you've seen what it looks like. Ideally, you've interacted with it emotionally because you've seen like, whoa, like that wasn't those weren't the pictures I thought I'd see. That's intense. And ideally, ideally, you're like, oh, I really need that word. Like, I need to be able to talk. This is a person in my life who is a Jewishka, and I need to be able to talk about her. Um, and at that point, you have a memory that is actually storable. You have a memory that your brain is not going to resist holding on to. It's a, it's a memory that your brain is going to want to hold on to. And once you have that, the rest of the journey becomes so much easier. Um, and that ends up being this sort of last piece of, well, when do you review this? And there are programs, computer programs, that will figure out when you should review a thing before you forget it. These are the spaced repetition programs that people use, like Anki. Um, that part has a, is a problem that has been solved pretty well. Uh, and so we we use that in, in Fluent Forever, but like there's a lot of things that use that. Um, many of them are free. And uh, the main piece, though, is what are you reviewing? Because if the thing you're reviewing is girl, what's the word for girl? And all you're doing is sort of deepening this idea that girl and djevushka are the same, then all you're doing is deepening a kind of shallow, uninteresting memory. But if instead you're showing the pictures you chose to store that emotional reaction of, whoa, that wasn't what I expected. And we say, what's that? And you're like, djevushka, that's what that is. Then we are we are allowing you to review an emotional experience and then you throw that in the computer program and you're like okay well when should i when should i have that emotional experience next and it's like oh well looks like you're ne you're next due for that emotional whoa in 2 weeks oh you got it right okay cool we're going to wait a month and then we're going to stick you know these pictures that you thought were emotionally relevant in front of you and, and see where you feel there and so that ends up being the whole system it's just it's a system for dumping emotional stuff into your head at the right rate so that you can hold on to it and then what you dump into like that's what you dump into that system that's kind of up to you we'll we'll give you guidance on that front but that could be you reading Harry Potter and pulling out sentences from that. That could be you just picking out random vocabulary. That could be you deciding, I care about dim sum. I only want dim sum vocabulary. Uh, I'm going to talk to a tutor. We're going to make some sentences about dim sum. We're going to stick those in. Um, so that can be that can come from a whole variety of sources. But as long as the engine is one that is allowing you to sort of review emotional stuff, then then it will work for you and it will work for you really quite quickly. So that's that's kind of the the neurology and then the little pieces of why this thing works and what why we do what we do. Yeah, there's about a million more things I want to ask about that, but uh, <laughs> sure. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I might just ask about where does the grammar fit into there. So grammar is cool in the sense that uh, it's the most complicated thing in the world, um, which is to say anything that we can think we. We store like, I don't know, 10% of that in vocabulary and like 90% of that in grammar. Uh, the idea of nuance is like, well, I would have done that, but, you know, I didn't really think I could, I, I could, so I didn't. Like, that's a crazy sentence. Nothing happened in that sentence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't even say what I was doing. And yet somehow I managed to convey like a really complicated set of like, well, I thought I'm like, like motivations and like I took the motivations away and there was an impediment to my motivations and all of that without even explaining what I did. All of that lived in the grammar. The idea that we can convey that level of subtlety and nuance to people through like random flapping of our tongues, like that's nuts. It's an amazing thing that language is able to do, and it's all stored inside of grammar, and every language stores it completely differently. 
Some languages would store all that stuff with extra little tags they stick at the end of words. Some some will do it in the conjugations. English does it by just throwing this like word salad of woulds and coulds on top of things. Um, they're all stored in, in really, really disparate ways, but um, the actual way that information is stored is that I have told you a story. There's information in that story of this. I would have done this, but I couldn't have. Um, and I've stored it either by taking set vocabulary words and changing them. So I will do this versus I would do that. So this is, I've, I've altered the word form. Um, I've like conjugated or declined the word. Um, or I change the location of voc set vocabulary words. So I would versus would I, you know, switches between questions and statements. Um, or I've thrown just new new vocabulary words that really only contain abstract information. So uh, let's, like would is actually a good example of something that's really, really abstract, but um, like things like prepositions, you know, I'm standing by the bus. I, I, I would have, uh, that book was by Shakespeare. Like the word by doesn't look like anything. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything except for this weird abstract function that it has in a sense. And so we have sort of functional words, we have words that change, and then we have word order. And those three things uh, those are the labels you can apply to every single language of all humanity. Those are the only techniques we have. Um, and so if you have a way to store that in terms of, like, if there's a way to present that in a flashcard such that you actually store that information in your head, then you can take apart any language as long as you can understand the gist of the story and then encode those into flashcards. And so when I have, let's say we take the word by as a, as a really straightforward one. So like this book is by Shakespeare. Um, if the word by doesn't look like anything, but in the context of this book is by Shakespeare, or the play was by Shakespeare, um, if I know the word play and I know the word book, um, I can have a sentence like, the book is blank Shakespeare. And I can have a picture of Shakespeare and I have a picture of him writing the book, whatever I want. I mean, there's a million pictures that could work with that thing. It could just be people playing on stage. It could just be I'm holding a book, lots of things. Um, but as long as I understood the gist of that sentence and then I chose the right picture that helped me remember that experience of being like, oh, bye, that's the one you used to tell who, who wrote the thing. Then tomorrow when I see that flashcard and it says, this book is blank Shakespeare, and it shows a picture of someone holding a book, then I can think, oh, yeah, yeah, that was that bye thing. That was the, that was the, the, the functional word that lets me tell who wrote the thing. Um, same deal with word order. If I just have a flashcard that says, you know, uh, it, you know, why is it the book is by Shakespeare versus the book Shakespeare by? Um, and so I can have another sentence that says the book is Shakespeare, and it says by, put this in the sentence in the right spot. Same deal. I'm not relying on translations. I'm not relying on anything except for the word order part. Um, and then similarly with, with conjugations, you know, if I have a thing like, like uh, you know, I, I would have done it, and it says I blank have done it. And it asks, what's the dictionary form of this? What's the original form? What is the form that this refers to? And so would is the right answer of what it becomes. That's the right, that's the vocabulary chunk. That's that little fixed piece in the exact same way that by was. Um, but the only thing special about word forms is that there is the conjugated form that lands in that story. And then there's some other form that lands in the dictionary. You know, I'm going to the store. Well, why is it am going? Like the actual root form is to go. And so I need to remember two bits of information instead of one. I need to remember I am going to the store, but I also need to remember that am going is a form of the word to go. And so if I ask both of those questions, then that's how I store that information. 
I blank, uh, you know, I blank to the store. I have this picture of someone running to the store. I remember because I, I, I encoded it myself. I picked the picture myself that this is about something happening in the future. Um, but now I'm asking a different question, not just what fi- what's the fill in the blank, but what's the dictionary form there? And I can think, oh, to go. That's enough to store all information in all languages. Um, it doesn't matter how complex the grammar is, as long as you can understand the story, because you know humans can only really mess with words in those three ways. It allows you to store everything. Um, and so learning grammar is a matter of getting some exposure to stories. Um, there is benefit in you understanding the rules behind those stories. You know, I understand why, why is it am going as opposed to, you know, uh, am gone? You know, why do, when do you use the ing form? Uh, and so you understanding the rough rule and you saying, okay, I get the rule and I get how it applies to this story. And now I'm going to learn it with one of these flashcards. Um, then that is enough for you to both retain the right word for the right context and also retain the rule. And when you've done both of those things, then you just move on to the next one. Um, it means that instead of having to uh, do grammar drills where you're going to do I am going, I am walking, I am jumping, I am just doing that a thousand times, you, got, you do it twice. And then you move on to the next rule. Um, and twice is enough. Honestly, once is often enough. Uh, and so that's generally our approach towards grammar is expose someone to a rule, give them three or four stories, allow them to choose a couple stories, move them to the next rule. I, I really love that too, because uh, just to point it out for people listening that it's completely the opposite of what how we learned in school, right? That it's, it's kind of like you're starting off with conjugation, with um, learning the the different grammar rules. How do you how do you do the present? How do you talk in the past and all these things? So I love how you've flipped it on its head that it's like, okay, first we're going to we're going to pay attention to the pronunciation of like what things are different than are in your first language. And then looking at what are the actual like words that you need to know, but like associating that with imagery, with experience. And then finally kind of the grammar comes in once you've got that other base. Is that correct? This is how we learn as kids. I mm-hmm. mean, as kids, you're not you're never telling someone how to conjugate like, you know, I want a cookie. You're just like, do you want a cookie? And then they're like, give it. <laughs> I mean, and then eventually, because they've heard enough words that involve, you know, I want this. I, do you want water? Do you want a cookie? Do you want, you know, a, a snack? All these things. And eventually they're like, I want, I want it. And you're like, okay, cool. You're getting the concept of wanting things. Uh, you know, grammar comes in later when they have to write things down. Like that's a, that's a second language for them. <laughs> It's grammar. Uh, and then many people never learn grammar and they never need to because they can speak the language just fine. Right. Anyone who's spent time around kids, I think in any language, they make a lot of grammatical errors and stuff when, they, when they're learning the language. So that's a completely normal and fine part of the process. I think even, even when you're talking to adults. Before we wrap up the interview, I want to, we'll play a very quick game. Uh, So yeah, this game's called Who Am I? This is very similar to 20 questions, but there's no limit of questions. So we each have a Jamboard with sticky notes on it. So basically we'll take turns, uh, we'll do one each. And when it's your turn, you're going to move the sticky note to find out the name of a famous person. And then your opponent, the other person has 60 seconds to ask yes or no questions to guess who the person is. If the person guesses it, before the 60 seconds are up, they get the point. But if they don't, then you get the point. So uh, there's a 60 second timer on there. And if you refresh the page, it will restart it. So I can go first Okay, whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, are you male? No. Are you female? Yes. 
Okay. Um, are you human? Yes. Cool. Are you a, a movie actor? No. Are you a performer of some sort? Yes. Do you perform music? Yes. Oh, I'm going to be screwed on this. Um, okay. Uh, are you still alive? Yes. Um, are you still producing music? Yes. Um, are you in your 30s? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, wow. I'm, okay. Are you a pop artist? Yes. Uh, male pop artist in their 30s. Um, <laughs> now I'm screwed. Uh, are you an R&B artist? No. Um, are you a white guy? Uh, yes. But it was a, it was okay. a woman. Just <laughs> okay, thank you. That's yep. Give it that hint. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I'm so screwed here. I don't know pop culture references. Um, <laughs> we have a female artist in her 20s, 30s, a pop. Um, wait, did we say R&B? Did I ask you about R&B? Yeah. Are I you said an R&B artist? No. No. Uh, okay. So, but you are a pop artist. Yes. And are you? I guess pop is not the same. Are you a country artist? No. Okay. I'm not going to get any better than this. <laughs> <laughs> I think the time's the one minute's out anyway. This timer doesn't okay. really work. I have another another timer on here, but it's restarting like every time it hits 49 seconds or something like that. So, mm. uh, anyways, it was Lady Gaga. You oh my god! Her. Okay, yeah. You yep, asked if yep, it was an I actor, could. and then I was thinking like, oh, now she kind I of think, she kind of is. She kind so of is. I think she I might. Yeah, misled yeah. you there, but. <laughs> <laughs> No, that wouldn't have helped. Um, <laughs> cool. Let's try one more. Um, I don't think I'll be any better at this. So, uh, All right. I got one. Okay. Uh, is it... Are you female? No. Male? Uh, are you human? Yes. Are you alive? Uh, no, I don't think so. Don't think so. Are you a politician? No. Are you historically uh, significant? I mean, everyone's a little historically significant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you uh, an artist of some sort? Yes. Are you in music? No. Are you an actor? No. Uh, are you a painter? No. Oh, God. Um, are you... Oh, what else could it be? Artist might have been a little misleading. <laughs> uh, I have no idea. Five seconds left. Uh, yeah, time's up. <laughs> Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I never would have gotten that. I don't know why I didn't think of author. <laughs> That's a type of artist. This is a very sure. challenging game. Yeah, yeah. Well, neither of us did very well. So I guess we're both losers there this time. <laughs> Yay. We lost together. But yeah. Uh, well, I really hope we can do this again because like I said, I have a long list of questions still. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, before we end, I want to ask, do you have any any asks, any final considerations for the audience? I don't think so. I think generally, I, I, the, the main thing I want in terms of all of these things is I, I want people not wasting their time. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people spend a long time spinning their wheels with language learning. And like language learning is so important, especially when we're talking about learning English in today's economy. Um, and the idea of people spending, you know, hours or years uh, trying to memorize translations or trying to not use spaced repetition or trying to not use pronunciation early on, like that, that hurts me. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so I guess my main ask is don't do that. Like, like learn about what what will save you time. Um, the hours you spend in the beginning, or even now, like even if you're halfway through, um, if you spend two, three, four hours trying to learn how to do this more efficiently, it will save you hundreds of hours in the long term. And so take the time. Take the time to, to, to figure things out. Uh, I, I am not the only source of those resources. I am a source of those resources. Use what I got. 
go find other places, like do whatever you need to do, but don't spend years, like just spinning your wheels on things that don't work. Uh, figure out how your brain works, what, how, what actually makes you feel like you're learning at a rap- rapid rate. Uh, if it doesn't feel like you're learning, you're probably not. Um, and then go run after that. Like that's, that's, I would say in, in terms of asks, uh, that, that would make me the happiest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I absolutely love that. Uh, I think it's true for language learning. It's true for anything that you want to learn is, you know, you don't, life is short. You don't want to waste your time on things that just don't work or that they don't bring you enjoyment, fulfillment. I mean, I think too, especially at the beginning, it should be something that, that challenges you, that excites you, that, that puts a smile on your face in some sense. So if it's not, then, uh, I like what you said there that, you know, it's probably not working. So, uh, Gabe, it's been absolutely fascinating conversation. Like I said, I hope we can do it again. We can have a rematch at the the 20 questions, hopefully. <laughs> do a little bit better. I will still do poorly there, yes. <laughs> and we need a two-minute timer next time. Indeed. Uh, and yeah, where can people find you? The the app, your book, all that good stuff. Um, I would say the book is the best place to start at this point, um, but you can find all of our stuff at fluent-forever.com or just Google Fluent Forever. It will be the first ones that come up. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, again, thanks so much for your time and I hope we can do this again soon. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find all the mentioned links and resources from this show on the show notes at reallifeglobal.com. It is also linked in the description of this episode. If English fluency is important to you, then remember to check out our Real Life app where you can practice listening to native speech and speak with other learners from around the world while also discovering new cultures. In addition to that, you can get a full interactive transcript and vocabulary for this interview. You will find that linked in the description or just search for Real Life English in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. For now, remember that no matter what divides us, that which unites us is far greater. See you on the next show.